0: What is up everybody, I'm Scott Melker and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Today's guest is a true OG in the crypto community and a self-proclaimed cheerleader for one of the most hyped projects in the space, Sovereign. I'm also pleased to announce Sovereign as the newest sponsor of the podcast. Now, Yago has created an extremely unique decentralized infrastructure powered by Bitcoin, which I can't wait to dig into. But beyond Sovereign, I'm eager to discuss how an OG Bitcoiner looks at what's fueling Bitcoin's price, Bitcoin's role in DeFi, current technological developments on Bitcoin and how his intense background has led him to where he is today. So Yago, man, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. It's a pleasure to be
1: here, man. Thanks.
0: So, so before we get into the questions, once again, you're listening to the Wolf of Wall Street's podcast, where twice a week I talk to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, and politics. The show is powered by BlockWorks Group, a media company with over 20 podcasts in their network. You can check them out at blockworksgroup.io. And if you like the podcast, follow me on Twitter, Check out my website, join my newsletter. You can do both those things at thewolfofallstreets.io. So, Yago, we constantly hear about the narrative calling uh, Bitcoin digital gold, but you have a crazy history with regards to actual gold. You were a gold smuggler as a child. I, I need to hear that story first just to get this started.
1: Yeah, so um, uh, my family uh, have always been very ideological and very uh, disagreeable for authorities. And um, I grew up in South Africa during the apartheid, which was, you know, the segregation between whites and everyone else. And um, my family were involved in fighting the apartheid government and um, they were affiliated with the ANC, which is, uh, you know, Nelson Mandela. And so uh, there were always issues, you know, I I remember my mother being nervous about us being followed and, Um, you know, hearing stories, and it was mostly kept hush-hush, like they they pretty much tried to shield me from it, uh, you know, because I was a kid. But one night, um, I was woken up because there was like commotion, and my uncle was in our house, and there was like running around, and my grandfather was talking to him and gave him keys to my grandfather's car, so that he could Um, basically drive through the nights to get out of South Africa because he had discovered that the authorities were after him. So after that, uh, we were, you know, trying to get out and there were other members of the family were getting out. And so there was there needed to be some way to get the family funds out of the country, like many countries today with oppressive governments like Venezuela or, 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 or China and even some countries with less oppressive governments like Korea or Brazil there were significant capital controls in South Africa. So what my mother did is she converted funds into Krugerrands, which were these South African gold coins and sewed them into my clothes. And I started having trips overseas, like alone, um, which were basically smuggling trips because they wouldn't search kids. So that's how we got the funds out of the country and You know, between that and several other stories that i had grown up on about my family, you know, smuggling or surviving in different places, like in Eastern Europe as refugees, or dealing with capital controls in in the communist bloc. By the time I came across Bitcoin, I think I was primed to, to realize this potential. And I... I basically it screwed up my life. Like after I, I, I encountered the, the white paper, um, you know, I basically dropped everything else I was doing. Um, and for the last, uh, wow, almost 10 years, it's I've been engaged a hundred percent in the space.
0: So can you talk about that first introduction to, to Bitcoin and why it was so powerful for you? Obviously, as you said, you were primed for it, but, um, it's a big step to drop everything and, you know, go full-time into something at the time that was especially so nascent and small.
1: Yeah, so I think I've inherited the um, the whatever gene it is that is in my family that makes us uh, difficult people when it comes to dealing with authorities. I've always been um, sort of politically engaged and active, but also from an academic perspective, I was studying neuroscience and specifically I'd been focusing on neural networks. And so the way I actually came across the white paper was because I was reading papers in uh, networking science. This you know, was totally different and took me by surprise, but given sort of my background from the perspective of thinking about what happens when governments go wrong, thinking about how important monetary sovereignty was for personal freedom. I don't think that a person can be free if they don't have freedom over their assets. Um, And that's also why governance, that's the first thing they always squeeze. Um, And also because I was just, you know, intellectually fascinated and curious with my optimistic view of a future where we would use less resources we would be less wasteful because we would mostly be using digital resources we would live in more and more digital worlds as we spent more and more time in the internet as we as the internet became more and more immersive um i just felt it was the future in every it like it touched every single nerve and it was clear to me that as big as the internet was the biggest thing it was missing was a homegrown economy, a way of having a proper economy. And a proper economy means scarcity. So if you think about all of the industries that managed to grow up with the internet up until this point, they've all been based around things which don't require scarcity. It's mostly been advertising, right? Because advertising is the only thing that you want to sell where you want people to replicate it. Like you're happy for for, for there to be no scarcity for, for you know, if, if people sort of like share your ad with, with their friends, that's a good thing, right? Everything else you kind of want to maintain scarcity. And so Google, Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok, all the big internet companies are driven by advertising, which is just such a weird thing. It's such a big part of our economy, but all it does is is advertise. And it was clear to me that the, the, the shoe that hadn't dropped was having digital native scarcity and Bitcoin invented that. And so that I think um, of all of the other stuff, it was clear to me that not only was this the right thing to do, but it, that it would be successful because it was the thing that we needed to do. Like, you know, it was late over. I didn't realize this at the time, but I had like an intuition. But I think what has become clear to me over the years is that Bitcoin is a reformation Bitcoin is a revolution of freedom, but it's dressed up as a get-rich-quick scheme, and that's what makes it so successful.
0: Yeah, that's true. You need the speculation for those who uh, believe in it to actually profit and see it come to fruition in the end, and I think that's something that we're seeing very clearly now, uh, certainly through the back half of 2020 and coming into 2021. Um, One of the big hot topic issues of the last year in crypto obviously has been DeFi, right? Um, We've seen all these platforms built largely on Ethereum, insane gains and losses by people uh, speculating on food coins and yield farming and all of this stuff. I know that it's your contention that the real base of DeFi should and can be Bitcoin. So I'd like to dig into that because I think most people's view at the moment is that it's an um, Ethereum-based concept.
1: Right. So first of all, it absolutely is right now, mostly on Ethereum. And the fact that Ethereum has created DeFi is, is huge. It's such a... It's such an important thing that Ethereum has contributed. Um, and the way I think about it is you have like the first invention, which is Bitcoin, which is the base invention. And that's monetary sovereignty. It's a new monetary system. And, you know, money makes the world go around. So the monetary system is the gravity well, is the foundation of it all. But now there's, the second thing that we need to do, phase two, is the financial system, right? So, so we need to build the fina- the decentralized permissionless borderless financial system. And, and, and up until we had DeFi, we didn't really have that. The ecosystem around the decentralized monetary system was completely centralized, right? Centralized exchanges, centralized lending services, et cetera, in financial institutions. But now with DeFi, we're starting to bring the decentralization into phase two, which is the finance world. And once we get the finance world, which is where the liquidity is, which is where the ability to to generate um, the capital to start new businesses is, then you get to the end game, which is a decentralized, permissionless, borderless economic system, which means that every single person will be living their lives You know, all of their economic activity basically in the crypto space. And I think that's where we're going. And I think that's the end game. And each of these phases, I think, could take about 10 years. So the first 10 years is the monetary layer. Now, um, the problem with DeFi right now, as I see it, is that the biggest, um, most important pool of liquidity, 90% of the liquidity in the crypto space is in Bitcoin. And it's mostly unconnected to the DeFi space. Uh, so we need to marry those two pieces if we really want them to, to blossom and be as powerful and as effective as they should be.
0: And that's a perfect sev- segue into Sovereign, right? I mean, that's what you guys are doing. So I'd love for you to talk about the
1: platform and, and how you're making that happen. So what Sovereign is, I think maybe one way to think about Sovereign is Sovereign is a side chain to Bitcoin, which means that it is Um, Bitcoin native, it has um, Bitcoin as its native currency, it has, uh, it is secured by Bitcoin proof of of work through merge mining, Um, and at the same time, it's deeply connected to, and we'll we'll get more and more deeply connected to Ethereum, so it's, on the one hand, a sidechain to Bitcoin, on the other hand, it's like the Bitcoin shard for Ethereum, and the goal exactly is that is to provide the glue between those two worlds and this is because uh on the one hand on the ideological side right i believe that if people are going to be free then we need to have a financial world which is as decentralized as our monetary base in bitcoin and then sort of on the greed side uh and the reason i think this will work is you know i I, when I was uh, a student, I had a finance professor. And in the very first class, uh, the finance professor said, the way you build a successful financial system or a successful financial business is you basically need to just do one thing. You find a giant stream of money and you go stand in the middle of it. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think the giant, the giant stream, right? Which we as an industry need is the deep liquidity of Bitcoin with the decentralized financial tools of the DeFi space, um, and so that, and so, so, so we're building that connective tissue. But it's more than just connective tissue; it's, um, it's, it's a full-stack financial operating system. Uh, in other words, Sovereign already has um, uh, Bitcoin and other tokens, um, sort of like Ethereum tokens, that you can um, trade in a decentralized way. You can margin trade, leverage trade. Um, uh, borrow, lend. And so all of the key financial primitives are being built and, and, and the community is building more and more all the time. And
0: there's always the adage in the Bitcoin community, certainly in the maxi community, you know, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Right. And so I think that that, in many people's view, is what uh, keeps a lot of those people, big holders, from participating in DeFi because they don't want to put their Bitcoin on a platform where they don't own the keys and and they're not their own bank. But I know that that's also something that Sovereign is solving for, correct? That's right. That's right.
1: So um, we uh, have um, a a decentralized uh, peg. Um, and we're currently working on having a fully trustless pig with Bitcoin. So it's different from WBTC, which um, is the most popular way of getting Bitcoin onto Ethereum right now, but is completely centralized. And so in essence, it's not really part of DeFi. It sort of serves DeFi platforms, but you you lose the DeFi-ness for Bitcoin. Um, and beyond that, it's also secured by Bitcoin proof of work. So if you think about one of the important things and one of, the, one of the things that people who are using Bitcoin care about is making sure that their security is the best, the highest level of security that exists, which is, you know, like nothing matches Bitcoin's proof of work. And also, I suppose, for many of them, like many of the big holders are OGs, are whales who have been in this from the beginning and, and believe in the system. And they want to continue to support Uh, the continued growth of Bitcoin. And so when you pay fees, like gas fees, right? In in Sovereign, you're actually paying the Bitcoin miners helping to provide even additional security to Bitcoin. Um, And as a result, Sovereign has an interesting property that when you're using Bitcoin, you're secured by Bitcoin. And when you're using like Ethereum or an ERC-20 in this decentralized exchange, you're secured by Ethereum. Um, And so you always have the security assurances as sort of like the parent chain. Uh, and maybe we should talk a little bit about how I think parent chain, the world of parent change is changing, right? So right now, um, I think we're going through a very exciting and somewhat scary time for Ethereum. Ethereum has probably reached, is kind of out, outgrown itself, right? Sure. Um, transaction fees alone can sometimes be just in the gas, $350, right? A couple of days ago, even something as simple as a Uniswap swap swap was $40 per transaction. Unless you are a whale, there's no ways that you can use that uh, profitably. And probably even most whales can't profitably trade at $40 per transaction before transaction fees, right? Before trade fees. And so one of the things that I think is most beautiful about Ethereum is that it is a hyper-inclusive culture. But at the same time, it's kind of become the most hyper exclusive chain, right? A chain that, you know, only whales should use because everyone else gets crushed. And I think everyone realizes this. And so it's clear that over the coming few months, more and more activity is going to move off chain into layer two, primarily through bridges with projects like Sovereign and roll ups, which Sovereign is actually going to be transitioning to a roll up as well um and this will help provide much needed scaling capacity to ethereum but at the same time it's actually going to break uh with a high level of probability so i can't say this for sure but but based on you know if you actually you know consider it there's going to be all of these different bridges all of these different layer two roll-ups and right now every single depth. In the Ethereum ecosystem is very, very tightly connected to all of the others and liquidity moves between them. They all kind of rely on each other. There's a high degree of what they call in the DeFi space, composability, right? Lego pieces. What happens when you break that composability? Because every project or multiple different projects go to different spaces, right? So, um we're going to go through a period where we're going to suffer with the problem that wallets won't be as interoperable as they are now projects won't be as interoperable as they are liquidity won't flow as easily as it does now. Uh, And eventually this will get solved, but there's going to definitely be a dislocation. Um, And so one of the things that we're doing with sovereign is we are building it as a full stack system where it Um, can interoperate with everything else, but it isn't reliant. It has its own trading mechanism, its own AMM, its own lending, its own um, uh, market making and liquidity. uh, uh, And it's kind of amazing what the community have built in such a short space of time. They've really reconstructed all of the basic aspects, uh, the basic, you know, the primitives we call them of of, uh, finance uh, that is required for DeFi. So it sounds like for you, the end-all be-all is Bitcoin.
0: And so you can take the example of what's being built in other places and improve upon it and put it on Bitcoin and make it better.
1: Well, I don't think it's the end-all. Uh, you know, I, I really love what's being built on Ethereum. I think that Ethereum in isolation of Bitcoin um, it, it loses a lot of its power. And Bitcoin in isolation to Ethereum loses a lot of its power for the reason that, Bitcoin is the monetary pool it is where the liquidity is there's a second piece of liquidity which is stable coins
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which also is struggling right now on ethereum you know I mean we pay uh, I, I all the vendors I work with we pay with stable coins and um, it's become so expensive just cra- it really it. is cra- <laughs> it's really crazy
0: the last few weeks and, and there's been phases this summer and later that it was crazy but like you said I mean sometimes if you want to send a small transaction and pay 20 or 30 dollars for
1: it it doesn't make much sense exactly um so i think i think there is a bit of a misalignment in terms of where we think the network effects are in the blockchain world i don't think they've ever really been in the blockchain and we know that because there was the bitcoin blockchain but now there's a lot of other blockchains right we also know that because there is the ethereum blockchain but everyone's gonna have to move to layer two The real locus of gravity, the real network effects are in the assets and the two big assets that have network effects right now in terms of liquidity pooling is on the one hand, Bitcoin as the reserve asset. And on the other hand, stable coins as the bridging asset to the rest of the fiat world.
0: It's interesting that you bring up stable coins because obviously, you know, you were inspired by the white paper, which is a peer to peer cash. Right. Yeah. And to some degree, I mean, I've made the argument before and heard many others make it. We've seen Bitcoin sort of, um, you know, polarized towards the store of value narrative because stable coins have come in and are actually to some, you know, the superior cash. Do you think that stable coins to some degree are far more transactable and have replaced that part of what Bitcoin was intended for?
1: In the short term, certainly. I always thought that it would be very difficult to- for people to transition sort of their economic lives uh, directly to Bitcoin. And you know, going back to what I was saying a little bit l- l- earlier, I think the economic, the decentralized borderless economic phase is the end game. It's the last thing that we will do. And so we need something to bridge us there, right? Because everyone today thinks in dollars or euros or whatever their local currency is. And that's the role that stablecoins play. I don't think stablecoins are the long-term vision of anyone. <laughs> yeah. But 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 um, the short term, when you're thinking short term in crypto, 10 years is still quite short term. It's this is this is a generational project. Yeah, that makes sense. I just
0: think that most people in crypto feel like 10 years is a hundred years anywhere else. <laughs> and so it's It definitely hard to, is. I mean I
1: I think you know one year in crypto. You know, you know, you've got human years, which is one year, dog years, which is seven years, and crypto years, twenty-one years. I um, think it's accurate. Yeah, but at the same time, I think a lot of people seem to be focused on trading, or you know, you know, what altcoin they can buy, or when is it alt season. I tend to think of it, certainly in terms of Bitcoin, as more like real estate. Right? Nobody day trades real estate, <laughs> but but if you if you were growing up in the 60s or the 70s or even the 80s, you only really had to make one right decision, and that was to buy a house, so right? True. And then everything appreciated. You didn't need to trade. You didn't need to have a retirement account. You just needed to buy a house anywhere in the world, pretty much. Our generation doesn't have that. We can't even afford to buy houses. But our generation, the one right decision you need to do is to buy Bitcoin and hold um, you do that. That's the equivalent of buying a house in the '70s or the '80s. Uh, you only really need to get one thing right. And so, um, I think the way people should be thinking about this is: yeah, sure, you can try and figure out when out season is, or you can trade, you know, with 100x leverage. And that's that's you know that's cool and and maybe it's fun and maybe it's the way you make your you know 100x. But the way you're going to guarantee for yourself, hey, better future and financial sovereignty for yourself and your children is making the one right decision of holding Bitcoin.
0: Do you think that that decision is still available to most regardless of the price? Uh, There's obviously some who would argue that that was true at a thousand or a hundred or three thousand, but you know, 30,000, 40,000, do you think that people need to be concerned about tops? Or do you think that if you have the long enough time horizon, this is merely a, a step on the way?
1: nobody who bought a house in 1973 remembers whether it was a good year for real estate or a bad year for real estate they know so that they bought the house the house for thirty thousand dollars today that that house is worth a million dollars with bitcoin the same thing is going to happen except much much faster so bitcoin in 10 years or five years i don't know but you know it's going to be a million dollars or ten million dollars a coin uh I, I and the reason is there's hundreds of millions of houses but they're 21 million bitcoin um the level of scarcity here and the speed of digital progress just means that this is going to massively outperform, and really has massively outperformed anything real estate has ever done we have an opportunity our generation has been given an opportunity we got lucky uh that we get to be part of the greatest uh, opportunity for wealth creation that humankind has ever experienced and um, you, anyone can do whatever they want, but I'm gonna take full advantage of it.
0: I, I agree with you. I just I was going completely playing devil's advocate, but I think that we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg here, obviously. And, and 2020 to some degree is what opened the floodgates to that, right? And the, th- the problems that the world is becoming aware of that maybe some of us were aware of before 2020 are just coming into focus for your average person right Absolutely. i mean monetary policy fiscal policy central banks uh, endless printing all of these things you knew about them before but your average person is still just having that awakening don't you think
1: yeah definitely i mean look we i'm extremely optimistic about the future because we are going through such a, a, a transitional phase i think it's clear to everyone and, and that our our institutions are no longer performing the function that they were meant to perform. We no longer trust them. Um, they are no longer fit for purpose. National institutions can no longer deal with a globalized world. Uh, uh, slow institutions can no longer deal with a fast world. Paper-based institutions can no longer deal with a digital world. In every single way, they are no longer fit for purpose. And as a result, most people have become very, very angry or depressed because they see the world that they know crumbling around them. I think we are at the precipice of change, but what's going to happen is once we're pushed over that precipice, it's not that we're going to fall, it's that we're going to fly. Everything that we've, all of this stuff has been holding us back. The academia and how old and, 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 and inefficient has become has been holding back science. Politics has been holding back social change. Um, uh, the, the, the mega corporations of yesterday have been holding back economic change. And we're about to change all of that and unleash human potential again.
0: Man, when you say it, it sounds so inspiring. I'm ready. <laughs> you got, got me pumped up. So but it leads to an interesting question because obviously we talk about DeFi and we talk about the purpose of Bitcoin as you know, being a hedge against the system or, or however you want to put it. But now we're seeing the system start to get very interested in Bitcoin. Right. So is that a good thing or or is that a bad thing, knowing that banks will be able to use stable coins, that they'll be able to custody your Bitcoin? You know, obviously the increased attention by tax authorities, things like that.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, there's that old line. uh, First, they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you. Well, we're definitely entering the then they fight you phase because for the first time. Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency world represents a actual threat to the status quo, a, a threat so obvious that even the most uh, unimaginative bureaucrat can get their head around it. And so, we are, I think, going to go through. You know, for the last ten years, um, we've had a really great time. Uh, you uh, could buy pretty much any shit coin and make money. Uh, there was no one really against us. There was no substantial regulatory movement against us. In fact, quite the opposite. And um, and, and you look like a genius. And so we did what people who have too much time and too little challenge on their hands always do. We turned on each other, right? We started fighting around. We would go onto Twitter and tell each other why each other's coins were shit. Um, and most of them were, but but the point is that was not yeah. nearly. Important as it felt, um, but hard times make strong people, and strong pay- people make good times, and I think that the secret sauce there is unity, and I think that we're about to be attacked, and I think that the assault we're about to be under as an industry, as a community, as a movement, is going to mean that this narcissism of small differences is going to look increasingly unimportant, And we're going to come together as a community, get rid of crypto tribalism and realize that the real enemy is the no-coiner status quo. And the no-coiner status quo includes the big exchanges and the financial institutions that, uh, that are going to buy them and the regulators who are going to increasingly regulate them. And that's why DeFi for Bitcoin and for everything else is so important because it is the only avenue we have for maintaining uh, our financial sovereignty and the continued um, value of this this, this this reformation that we're creating.
0: So regulators will attack and DeFi will be the only way to opt into
1: a new banking system and out of the legacy financial system, effectively. 100%, 100%. And that's why it's so important that everyone, Bitcoiners included, Bitcoiners especially, come together under this banner of all right we're in phase two now they're attacking us now monetary tool is not enough if you can't use it in a decentralized way. right the irony of bitcoin is you have this amazing decentralized coin but every time you want to use it you have to go into a centralized service right yeah that's not good enough anymore it was maybe maybe it was fine for the first 10 years when we were when we were in the honeymoon phase but now now the the real game has started And so now we we need to be more careful.
0: Uh, To that point, I mean, Bitcoin can't be banned, right? I mean, nobody can ban Bitcoin. They can't stop the network, but they can certainly make it really difficult to get your dollars in and out,
1: exactly, whatever currency or even your Bitcoin in and out. And that's the real threat, right? The travel travel rule is basically going to squeeze exchanges or lending platforms, right? That where you have like been lending your Bitcoin or staking your Ether. It's going to basically say. Listen, Binance, listen, Kraken, listen, Coinbase. Phase one, right? We're going to warn you. Phase two, we're going to tell you, you know, you're not allowed to send to, to let withdrawals happen unless you can say with certainty that the person withdrawing it is withdrawing it to their wallet. And there's no way you can say that with certainty. And if you can't say it with certainty, then you, Mr. CEO and you, Mr. Compliance Officer, will At any time, you may be liable for criminal charges. And so what are the exchanges going to do? Uh, What are the exchanges going to do when they want to IPO like Coinbase? What are the exchanges going to do when they want to be bought up by Fidelity? They're going to have to play by the rules. And the rules are going to be uh, no more sovereignty, no more sovereign wallets. Uh, So it's going to become very... You, we, people can find themselves suddenly trapped outside of the permissionless crypto space if they are using centralized services. That's scary. I think um, so. I think it is. Yes.
0: And I think it's especially scary uh, if you're sitting where I am in the United States. Um, <laughs> yes. <it's, laughs> you know, and, and because most of these things that we're discussing are not theory anymore here. You know the idea that you're talking about with KYC and AML for private wallets is on the docket already in the United States and they gave a very short time for people to comment and they did it over a winter break when nobody was in session or at work I mean the writing's on the wall so if you're an American what are you supposed to do you're gonna have to play by the rules just like those exchanges
1: that's right I mean look America uh, the, the, the beacon of democracy for the world, right? The land of the home, uh, the free and the brave, right? Um, it is also the country that confiscated everyone's gold in 1936, right? Now, 1936, the United States was not less democratic than it is today. If anything, it was more democratic, sure. more liberal, right? In the classical sense, uh, more constitutional, and yet it is the country that confiscated everyone's gold. So uh, if it could happen once in the United States, it can happen twice. Sure. Okay, so let's dig into what DeFi
0: and Bitcoin together look like. Um, We obviously hear a lot now about people saying, don't sell your Bitcoin, just take a loan against it. What does that look like
1: for the average person? Um, So right now you can go, you have basically two options. First of all, before we talk about how you can do that, maybe we should talk about why you'd want to do that. Sure, right? that's better. So let's say you have a bunch of Bitcoin right now and you, uh, you, you have expenses, right? You, 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 so you want to spend money. You can sell, but that kind of sucks because this is the one good decision that you have to make in life is not selling your Bitcoin, right? The other reason it sucks is because if you sell your Bitcoin, you have to pay tax to the IRS, right? So there's an alternative. The alternative is you can take out a loan. Um, if you go through a centralized service like a BlockFi, right? Then all of the Bitcoin that you've given them to custody is at risk. But at least you've managed to take out a loan and you're paying maybe you know six, 7% interest per year on an asset that appreciates uh, 100% a year, so you're, you're easily paying back that loan just from the, the fraction that of, 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 of increased value that you have. But there's a better alternative now with DeFi, with um, platforms like Sovereign. Deposit your Bitcoin in a trustless way, where you maintain control of your keys, where it can never be confiscated by anyone, where the platform is as uncensorable as the asset and now you're taking a loan out. You're basically borrowing from yourself. You're borrowing a stable coin or you're borrowing um, a Bitcoin-backed stablecoin, even better. And um, basically, you're now, like, you're now able to live like a rich person. So how do rich people leave, live? Right? They've got yachts or they've got big houses in Monaco. Um, they, never, uh, they, they, they try not to have an income right? because an income is something you have to pay tax on. So instead, they'll go to a bank And they'll say to the bank, listen, uh, I have a a, a 50 foot yacht, give me a $5 million loan uh, with the yacht as collateral. And then they spend down that loan never having to pay tax. And and, and and in the meantime, the value of the yacht or the art or the house goes up so much in value that it pays back the loan itself. Uh, Now that opportunity, and this is the coolest thing about DeFi, the coolest thing about Bitcoin, all of the opportunities that used to be available only to the 1% of the 1% are now available to everyone.
0: And how so? Because Bitcoin is the greatest. I mean, I always argue
1: Bitcoin is the greatest collateral that's ever <laughs> exactly, existed. Exactly, exactly. You don't need to have a 100-foot yacht. You need to have you know, 100,000 Satoshi, right? You need to have 0.1 of a Bitcoin. And, uh, and you're good.
0: <laughs> what if the price drops? <laughs> I mean, devil's advocate, you know, it, it, it does generally go up 100% uh, yeah. most years, but if you did that in 2014 or
1: 2018, or what was it, 2011, not as pretty. 100%, that, that's completely true, uh, which is why uh, you, you know, there's, but there's suddenly a quantifiable way To quantify that sentence, never invest more than you can afford to lose. How much can you afford to lose? The amount you can afford to lose is now quantifiable because it's the amount of interest you can continue to pay without having to pay to to start selling down your your collateral, right?
0: No margin call. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. So now you know exactly how much you can afford to lose. So let's say you have a Bitcoin and you are borrowing twenty thousand dollars off the basis of that Bitcoin, and you're paying. Let's make it expensive, 10% a year, right? So you need to pay back $2,000 per year to make sure you never have to sell Bitcoin. So just make sure you've got $2,000 worth of income.
0: Yeah, it, I mean, it really is that simple. And I think the days of it could go to zero uh, are pretty much um, out the door, I, I, I hope, <laughs> yeah. certainly. So, and how does a, your platform or any of these other pa- platforms, how do they actually pay that yield? Um, I'm not talking uh, on the other side,
1: if you're you're allowing them to lend your Bitcoin, not if you're taking a loan, of course. Right. So what all of these platforms do, uh, sorry, what all of the decentralized platforms do is they uh, allow people to borrow your Bitcoin, but only in a way in which they are over collateralized. So, for example, to borrow your Bitcoin, they would have to collateralize with, um, you know, a Bitcoin and a half worth of value right and then if that asset that they have starts dropping in value relative to bitcoin they get margin called not you and so you are secured this is what's known as a secured loan the decentralized space doesn't work that way sorry so the centralized space, so like the block celsius Nexo's of the world they operate more like a bank which is fractional or unsecured lending so you know a. a a, a hedge fund that want to do market making will come to them and say, listen, we're an important hedge fund. We want to do market making in Bitcoin. We don't have Bitcoin. We don't want to go out and buy Bitcoin. So we're going to borrow Bitcoin from you. And because we are such a respectable hedge fund, you'll let us borrow from you on the basis of our credit rating. Sure. And so Blockfly or Celsius will let them do that. The DeFi space doesn't work that way. Um, And many people... I think believe that not that you know that it's just too risky to lend out Bitcoin uh, in that way, um, and and in fact, one of the biggest centralized U.S.-based VC-backed lending platforms just recently declared bankruptcy, taking a lot of um, people's assets with them. So um, the centralized world is not just problematic because of the regulations. It's also problematic because of the culture. It's also problematic because of the lack of transparency. And most of all, and basically this is the, the, the core issue for all of the other issues, it's problematic because of your lack of control as a user. Instead of you having the control, they do.
0: So what happens when the actual banks start custodying Bitcoin and lending it? Because that seems, I mean, you're talking about fractional reserve and the problems with the banking system. I think that's what's coming. Right. They're, if, they're, right. If, if they're saying, if the OCC is saying, hey, you guys can custody
1: Bitcoin, the only reason they want to custody Bitcoin is to be able to lend against it, right? Right. So they, there's a potential for rehypothecation there, right? So what is rehypothecation? Rehypothecation is a bank will say it's got uh, a, a, a thousand Bitcoin in its vault or whatever but will lend out 3000 Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. So a bunch of hedge funds and you and some other dude come and you all wanna borrow Bitcoin and so it lends to all of you Bitcoin. But how is that possible with Bitcoin? The only way it's possible with Bitcoin is on a centralized platform, right? So if you went to Kraken today and opened up an account with them and they decided to offer lending and they lent you a bunch of Bitcoin, you would have no idea if they would lent you actual Bitcoin or they just, lent you and 10 other people the same bitcoin right? right but with actual bitcoin like on a DeFi platform that can't happen because the bitcoin that is lent to you is on chain you can see it and there's no sort of uh pseudo uh, bitcoin uh rehypothecation that is kind of where something like wbtc on ethereum becomes a little a little bit problematic because it is on the one hand being used in DeFi, but on the other hand is through a centralized service. And so it's not real Bitcoin, Um, but it's a step in the right direction. And and I think, you know, we're starting to see see things like sovereign and TBTC take us even further in the direction of true on-chain trustless Bitcoin being able to be used in DeFi.
0: And why, what reasons are you seeing people giving for wanting to actually borrow that Bitcoin? I mean, we obviously hear that people just want leverage and they want, you know, to be able to short. (laughs) <laughs> right. I mean, that, that's one of the huge purposes, obviously. What other reasons are, are people looking to
1: actually borrow? So um, on, in retail, right, there's basically two reasons you would want to borrow Bitcoin. Reason number one, you're extremely bullish, right? Uh, so for example, in Sovereign, there's the ability to take Bitcoin and basically using your Bitcoin as collateral, borrow another Bitcoin. Right. So now you you if 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 bitcoin goes up you see twice as many gains but if it goes down you see twice as much loss right so that's just basically do i believe in bitcoin the second reason that retail well, you know basically regular users would borrow is they want to go short right so they borrow the bitcoin and immediately sell it because they think they can buy it back after the price drops then there are the institutions the institutions have those reasons for borrowing as well but they have additional reasons so a big one is the institutions want to make markets or ARB between price differences and exchanges, right? So that means that they need to, you know, have tens of thousands of Bitcoin sometimes. Yeah, gotta in got to create that sell wall. <laughs> exactly, exactly. To create the sell, but it's extremely expensive to buy Bitcoin. Right. Much, much cheaper to borrow it at, at six, seven, eight percent per year, right? And so that's... That's a big reason why they're using it. So it's basically the same thing, but with maybe a little bit more obfuscation or sophistication. Sure, that, make, that makes perfect sense. So I'm curious, you've been
0: here since literally the beginning. I mean, you know, within a year or two of the white paper being written, um, you've seen all the cycles. You saw the 2017 bubble, you know, by, by any definition, I think now we can accept it as such. What, what do you think is so different this time?
1: Well, what is different this time is, you know, uh, people have been shouting from the rooftops every single bubble up until now. The institutions are coming. The institutions are coming. Uh, This time it's actually happening. And that will, with a high degree of likelihood, change something. I don't think we have any idea what it's going to change. Does it mean that volatility gets dampened? Does it mean that this bubble is much bigger? Does it mean that this bubble is longer but with less... You know, ups and downs doesn't mean that there's not a big drop of this. We don't know. It's going to be, you know, a wild ride. My intuition is that it will change something, but it's actually not going to change all that much. So we're still going to have a hype cycle. We're still going to have a a a a, a huge up and then a hangover afterwards. Um, I think uh, it will you know, change the, the accent that we're using in this particular bubble, but it won't change the words. Um, so, um, but that I, you know, that, that's the big difference. The other big difference. And to me, this is the much more fundamental and interesting one is that this time we have the, an explosion and a growth of decentralized platforms, which are starting to drive this. And that includes decentralized leverage, which means that we can sort of um hyper pump and then hyper dump, which is definitely going to happen sure but but uh, for me, the really fundamental thing here, if we're looking at the long term adoption cycle, is I think this is the big cycle where decentralized services get adopted.
0: and we talk about hyper pumps and hyper dumps this this will come out soon, but people don't know that as we're sitting here, we've seen bitcoin drop effectively from forty two thousand to just under you know to just around thirty thousand in a matter of days you know and yeah i'm sure that you are unaffected by these things emotionally after having been through it so many times you know um but uh you're you're talking about it but it's actually happening to some degree right now i mean you're right 30 30 percent in a day or two right so uh, they we talked about an institutional floor but it's still getting passed through we can still see these huge moves right yeah
1: yeah definitely and it may be that um sort of if i'm if i have to myself in the shoes of an institutional buyer who has various mandates around diversification and risk management you know if i bought into an asset mid-december and it's now up 4x i'm have to i have to i'm mandated to think i need to take some money off the table yeah and so it might be that you know we saw that we see this sort of like jagged sawtooth pattern uh emerging now um but again you know that's like it's it's a, it's a, it's a difference in flavor but not in direction
0: well it's like you said uh, for one year is 21 years in crypto so you could see this in any <laughs> other you could see this in any other market in you know 42 days but two days here it's uh yeah. t- totally normal you just have to get used to the the i guess the velocity of the volatility in, in this market. But what, what's interesting is that for the first time, we're seeing these huge buy orders and then we're seeing that Bitcoin moved immediately off exchanges and into cold storage, right? We're seeing these yeah. major outflows from centralized exchanges. And I think that that indicates that there's an intention to, to secure the assets and hold.
1: Yes, yeah. I, I, look, I mean, the fact that we are at a historic lows in terms of Bitcoin being held in central services, It fills me with a sense of deep optimism. (laughs) (laughs) So
0: at what point do you think we start to see the central bankers themselves interested in this as a reserve asset? We're obviously already seeing the micro strategies and a few companies starting to dabble and talk about it. But if Bitcoin truly is this great reserve asset, this great inflation hedge, when do the governments start to want their, their holdings? Well,
1: I think it's already happened. I mean Iran, Venezuela, uh, North Korea, and Bulgaria all seem to have central bank or uh, central government stashes um, and uh, i think I think it's the same thing, right I mean if in two thousand eleven, two thousand and twelve, almost all the people who held Bitcoin were using dark markets right right the The dark market. You know, for regular people is the equivalent of the Iranian central bank for central bankers. Right. Um, so if you look at the, if you look at the same pattern of adoption, four years from now, major central banks are going to be holding Bitcoin.
0: Right. So now it's the central banks that sort of have to right? Exactly. that, they, you know, they have all of these, uh, they, the US government is, you know, saying yeah. you can and can't do this. So it's sort of their, their hand is being forced. So you think that it evolves over the yeah, coming definitely. years from, yeah, it's an interesting take. And we're also seeing that those countries are mining like crazy,
1: right? Yeah, uh, and it's and, and, and that's the crazy thing about it, right? I mean, it, we, you know, sovereignty has always been a game. It's like the Game of Thrones, right? It's like, who gets to be sovereign? Kings and countries, right? Bitcoin is the first time that we, like just regular people get to play the, the Game of Thrones right? We get to play with the sovereign money itself, created ourselves, right? Um, it's the first time that we're at the table with table stakes. And um, and now the sovereigns are having to play our game. The geopolitical importance of Bitcoin is going to start emerging, right? So China are putting out um, a digital sort of cryptocurrency, right? Sure. That's a shot across the bow at um, at the u s dollar so what are the u s dollar doing? the OCC has now made it possible to hold Bitcoin and stable coins by banks. what they're basically saying is listen, you Chinese people think you're ahead of the game, but tether is a ten billion dollar asset already, and we're about to turn it into a trillion dollar asset as well you know uh, and that we're going to do that by letting J P Morgan have a, a tether and by letting you know Citibank have a tether and uh, and so you're going to see the US dollar continue to be used, but at the same time uh, that they're doing that, they are introducing the on-ramps to Bitcoin. They're introducing the regulation that allows banks to hold Bitcoin, and they're introducing as a result, the environment, which is going to make, you know, if, if the United States want to fight the, this Chinese upstart, well, that means that the central bank is going to look for ways to combat it, and that's stablecoins and, and Bitcoin.
0: It makes the United States seem so incompetent. I mean, you think about it, it's like, go into Afghanistan, right? Uh, Fight with the Mujahideen, kick out the Russians, and then leave a gaping hole, which becomes a bigger problem for the Americans than there ever was when the USSR was there, right? I mean, and we've seen the United States do this in countless places around the world forever, and that what you're describing is somewhat the same thing, but with our money.
1: So there was an Israeli uh, ambassador to the UN called Abba Eben, who was eminently quotable and abba eben has this great line he said the united states will always do the right thing after they've exhausted all other options yes and 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 that's what we're seeing right you know that the united states right now they're flailing in every direction on the one hand banks are allowed to hold bitcoin on the other hand we're going to try and introduce kyc on every single bitcoin transaction the flailing will end after they've exhausted all of those options, China remains a threat, Russia remains a threat, and the only way to combat it is to do the right thing, which is going to be to hold Bitcoin. So that's the path to
0: central banks holding Bitcoin. It's an option option of last resort, effectively. Yeah, yeah, I think Uh, so. It makes so much sense, so that said, we have all these stable coins and you just talked about it. JP Morgan will get a stable coin Citibank, You get it. It's like Oprah giving things out. You get a car, you get a car, you get a car. Right. So then we're going to have this just incredible wealth of stable coins. They're not going to be interoperable. We're going to have this huge problem with too many stable coins doing too many things. And of course that means the option of last resort is digital dollar, right? like a, Like a central bank, digital currency, much like the digital you want. So how do we, get to a point where, you know, there's one stable coin that actually works as opposed to this fractured sort of environment. And why wouldn't the United States at this point just make their own central bank digital currency and skip all of that?
1: Mm, I don't think that's ever gonna happen. Uh, and the reason is the, the thing about money, right? Is it's most successful when it's most neutral. Right? Money is the way, so why does money even exist, right? It's because at some point human societies scaled to a point that you couldn't keep in your head, like who's close to you? Who do I owe a favor to, you know, who can I trust? So it was initially like the ability for one tribe that didn't trust the other tribe to trade with each other. In other words, money is what glues together people who don't trust each other, which is why it has to be so neutral. The more the dollar becomes politicized, the less neutral it becomes, the less valuable as money it becomes. But the United States government, the central bank, this, the, the, the federal government are addicted to the power that the dollar gives them. And so they are going to burn through that credibility until it's gone. They will. That's, that's inevitable. By printing. <laughs> by, by printing. But printing is just the, the half of it. The other part is the sanctions. The other part is the financial surveillance, global financial surveillance, FACTA, FATF, KYC, AML, all of these letters, right? The more letters they throw at us, the more USD becomes devalued. And that is a path that they will not be able to escape. Like a junkie, they will not be able to escape it until they've hit rock bottom, which is why stable coins that they will be issuing uh, through their banks are going to be useful for a time and will ultimately be replaced by a global reserve currency. And luckily you and I know the name of that global reserve currency. So we can take that. We can get there before them.
0: The moral of this entire conversation <laughs> is buy some Bitcoin and hold it for a really long time, right? I mean, if you get anything out of what uh, you're saying and you've said it so many times, this
1: conversation, all That's paths, one, all paths the, lead here. Yeah, it's the one good decision. Every generation gets to have like, you know, one good decision they need to make, right? It, it, in the 40s, it was get an education. In the 70s and 80s it was buy a house. And now it's plan B.
0: Well, it ain't buy a house anymore. Uh, no, I mean, definitely you know, they they, 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 well, they prove that those go up forever until they don't, right? And so yeah. we've seen yeah. the, the result of that crisis. Yeah, it's a. I love that analogy. I didn't say that before, but of, of you know, buying a house for the last 40 years was... That, that was it yeah and, and and i agree i think bitcoin is at this time so what uh can we look forward to from you and from sovereign in the coming months years you know decades as we start to see all these things that we discussed come to
1: fruition well right now sovereign is quite new and quite young um it's still um uh you know limited in terms of the amount of transaction volume we allow through it um as the, the system grows um you still need uh to, to get whitelisted in order to, so you kind of need to get like an early invite in order to participate completely pseudonymous and okay why well, but but you know there's still like a waiting list of, of wallets or addresses that can interact with it. I expect that by around March That will, uh, you know, we will be convinced that it is Bitcoin safe and, um, it will have gone through months and months of real testing with real funds and it will be, um, completely accessible. We already have a whole bunch of, uh, a whole community of developers who are are working on it and more and more joining all the time. And I think that it may not become the only, uh, You know, if you think about every single industry that has been digitized, right? So travel got digitized, it got a few operating systems, just a handful of them, Airbnb, Booking.com, Expedia. Um, uh, E-commerce got digitized, Uh, you get Amazon, Walmart, eBay. Um, search. You got Google, and you know maybe a few other like Bing and Google, and, and, right, and, Google. <laughs> and then and then computers themselves. The original digitization. You got a few operating systems. The only real exception to this, an industry that was digitized but didn't end up with some like open global operating system, is finance. And the yeah. reason is regulatory capture. I think the beautiful thing about DeFi is it creates an opportunity for truly borderless uh, uh, systems. And I think we're going to end up with a, finan- a global financial OS, which is going to be vastly larger, vast- have vastly more access to liquidity than any bank we can imagine today. Um, I I hope that there won't just be one of them because I think it's good to have more than one, just like it's good to have Linux and Windows and Android and et cetera. Um, and I hope it's not centralized. <laughs> You know, yeah, not like a, not like a ripple or, a, or, a, you know, JP Morgan coin or whatever. Um, and I think there's a very, very good chance that sovereign will be a full stack financial operating system for a borderless future. I absolutely love it.
0: So how can everybody sign up, participate and follow you after
1: this conversation? Uh, well, I can be found on Twitter. Uh, I sometimes publish in CoinDesk or Bitcoin Magazine or some other places. But um, just idaniago, like at idaniago on Twitter, and Sovereign is at SovereignBTC on Twitter or Sovereign.app is uh, the website. And it would be awesome to see uh, your listeners, you know, um, find their sovereignty and. If they like it, give the gift of sovereignty to their friends and tell other people about it.
0: That is the best thing that you can possibly do. And so everyone knows that's S-O-V-R-Y-N. You'll see it obviously in the in the show notes, but it's a clever spelling and take on obviously being sovereign and, and sovereignty. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Very inspiring and um especially from someone who's been here the whole time and you know, is unrattled and, and sees, sees the future, obviously, because I think that a lot of people are awakening to this shared vision of what this can be, you know, what this movement can be based on Bitcoin. And I think you laid it out exceptionally well.
1: Well, thank you very much. And uh, it, was, it was great to talk to you again, and I hope we can do it again in the future. And in the meantime, let's, let's all stay sovereign. <laughs> let's do it. Thank you. <laughs>